Hey everybody, and welcome to another Wednesday night online. And we're going to be looking once again at the questions Jesus asked. You know, I'm amazed that God would even ask us a question. Jesus is God the Son. But we tend to think, well, you know, Jesus asked them a question. Did he need to know the answer? Never. Jesus asked questions uh, for really a couple of reasons. One, uh, he wanted to bring a message. In Jesus' questions, there's there's always a message. And then the second reason he would ask questions is to make us think. There's lots of things that his questions would cause us to stop and think about, uh, consider, ponder, meditate on. Uh, so his questions, as with all things Jesus did, were designed to teach. He's called Rabbi, the great teacher. And he is indeed the greatest teacher to ever live. And so tonight we're going to carry on. I'm enjoying this. I've never done this before. I've never done a series on the questions Jesus asked. And, you know, I keep running into great ones. And so whereas we were going to stop a couple of Wednesdays ago, we're not stopping because I keep running across great questions that really bring great messages. So this time we're going to look at three more questions that Jesus asked. So grab your Bibles and follow along with me. Don't just listen, but let's get a Bible. Let's do a Bible study. And let's study that word of God. You know, the Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So let's get out those Bibles. And I'm primarily going to be reading from the New King James Version. Um, So let's start. Question number one. Here's a great one. Jesus asked, how can anyone enter into a strong man's house and take hold of his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? What in the world is that about? Well, let's look at the context because, you know, they say a text without a context is a pretext. Most bad teaching comes as a result of not reading a verse in its context. You need to always look at what came before the verse and what comes after the verse. So you want to get every one of your verses that you're actually trying to understand. You need to get the context. So here's the context for this question. It is found in Matthew 12, 22 to 29. And I'm just going to read it because it's a very, very powerful story. All right. It says, then they brought him, that is Jesus, a demon-possessed man, starting Matthew 12, 22. They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, meaning he couldn't talk. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Uh, but when the Pharisees, well, here comes those Pharisees, when they heard this, they countered it because the people when they said, could this be the son of David? They were on to something. They were, they were following the right scriptural footprints because indeed Jesus was the son of David. Uh, he came from the lineage of David in his earthly body, his earthly life it, through Mary. So when they asked if this was the son of David, the Pharisees knew, uh oh, they're getting close. So they countered it and they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. 
Well, Jesus knew their thoughts like he knows yours and mine. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Verse 26, Jesus continues. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? Because the Pharisees, the religious leaders claimed to do exorcisms sometimes. And so Jesus is turning their argument against them. He said, if I did it by the prince of demons, then how are you doing it? All right. So then they will be your judges. Now, verse 28, but if by the spirit of God, if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then Jesus brought the question that we want to consider tonight. Or again, how can anyone enter into a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man then he can plunder his house. Now, we can see that Jesus' question uh, came on the heels of the Pharisees, literally accusing him of witchcraft. This is unbelievable. The Pharisees were low, low, low people because they knew good and well that Jesus was showing all the signs of being the Messiah. They knew what the prophets had predicted he would do, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, so on and so forth. They, they knew that Jesus was doing all the miracles that the prophets had predicted Messiah would do. So they knew that he was not some uh, sorcerer, but they literally accused Jesus here of witchcraft. Can you imagine looking at the son of God and saying to him, uh, you know, you did this because you're, you're a warlock, you're a sorcerer, you're practicing witchcraft, but that's what they were accusing him of. They claimed that he drove out demons by accessing the devil himself, Beelzebub, to do it. Now, Jesus' first response, now, I don't know if you ever thought about it, but I have. You know, sometimes when we get criticized, our first reaction is to react. We, we, are, we get defensive and we want to we wanna defend ourselves and light into the person that has accused us of something terrible. But Jesus never did that. And I want you to notice, he doesn't react. He simply responds to their insane accusation with logic. He's, he logically tears apart their claim. How or why, he says, would Satan destroy his own kingdom? Right? Why, why would Satan drive his demons out of somebody uh, that they had been sent by the devil to possess? You know, Satan's the prince of the demons. Why would he himself cast them out when he's the one who put them in there? That's what he's saying. So Jesus is using logic. Uh, we could say he's giving an apologetic response, not making apology, but he's, he's giving a defense of the faith. He's explaining how crazy logically their accusation was. Now, then next, he points out that since he's driving out demons by the spirit of God, since it's not happening by the devil, then it has to be happening by the spirit of God. And if that's what is happening, then he tells them the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
And how has the kingdom of God come upon you? Through me, through the very one that you're accusing, God has visited the planet. And that's the only way that I could cast out devils because only God is greater than the devil. So Jesus is saying, if I'm doing it by the spirit of God, which I must be, then the kingdom of God has come upon you and you guys better wake up and quit this nonsense of accusing me of these things. This is where in uh, another one of the gospels, uh, Jesus said that if you blame, if, if you, if you see him performing miracles that clearly attest to who he is and you reject him, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, so very serious what they're doing here. And, uh, so Jesus is making the argument, God's kingdom of light and life is what was driving out Satan's kingdom of darkness and death. And so then came the question we want to consider. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? All right. Okay. Then he can plunder his house. So it's a picture of, you know, somebody breaking into somebody's house and tying them up and then going to their safe. And opening their safe and getting all of their money out of their safe and leaving. They could only rob the money if they tied up the inhabitants of the house. Now, this is really a very, very brief parable that Jesus is giving us on the straw man, the house, the goods in the house. It's a parable. Let me break it down for you. The straw man is the devil. The straw man in the house is the devil. His house represents the lives of those suffering under his awful power. Like the people that Jesus had been setting free that the Pharisees were watching him do. So the straw man is the devil. The house represents the lives of those that the strong man had inhabited. All right. Now the one who ties up the strong man is Jesus himself. And the goods that he carries away once the strong man is tied up are the souls of men redeemed by his shed blood. It's a beautiful picture here. The message of this parable is simple. There's only one person in all the universe that can set us free from Satan's power. They can come into our house, our body, and this is before we're saved, and bind the strong man that has a grip on us. And once he's bound, then the Lord is able to reach us with the gospel and set us free, save our soul. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet said about Jesus. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, let me just close this, this first question discussion with this. Um, the Bible says that before we know Jesus, we are under the power of the devil. We are literally the devil's child. Uh, and Satan is our father. Born once, you're lost. Born twice, you're found. Born once, the devil's your daddy. Born twice, God's your daddy. Now, um, we need to understand that 
Jesus is the only one who can come into our life and set us free, proclaim liberty to the captives. Before we know him, we're captives. We, we do what sin tells us to do. Uh, we go where sin tells us to go. We do all kinds of things that we sometimes we wonder why in the world, how in the world did I ever do that? Because sin is driving us and the devil along behind it, the sin, the devil's behind it um, until we know Jesus. And then once we know Jesus, he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So this beautiful parable, mini parable that Jesus gives is you have a house and that's our body. Inside the house of the strong man, that's the devil. Jesus comes in and ties the strong man up and then takes the goods, our soul, and redeems us. And so what a beautiful picture. Um, and you know, when it comes to being free, really free, truly free, uh, there's only one, one person who can do it. Self can't do it. Yourself can't set you free. Uh, rehab can't do it. Psychoanalysis and counseling might be able to help you understand some things, but only one can come into your life and literally bind the strong man and set you free. And his name is Jesus. So in answer to the question, only Jesus can set us free. And, um, and he is the one that binds the strong man. Aren't you glad that there you and I were um, just following sin living in darkness, doing whatever the devil prompted us to do under his tyranny, the hard taskmaster called the devil. And aren't you so thankful that Jesus came in and bound that strong man in us and amazing grace set us free. And now he owns our soul. Jesus purchased us, redeemed us. And now we've been bought by the blood of the lamb. Aren't you glad for that? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So that's the first question we're going to deal with tonight. Now, here comes a second question, very different from the first one. <clears throat> so the second question we want to consider is this. Jesus asked, how is it that you seek praise from one another and you don't seek the praise that comes from God? Now, that's a question out of John 5, verse 44. And the, the context for this question is found in John 5. You, you, can, you can read the chapter. We note that Jesus is discussing the reason why some people did not come to him for salvation. It begins in verse 40. The context for this really begins in John 5, verse 40. So Jesus is discussing the reason why some people refuse to come to him for salvation. So let's just jump into the narrative and read it. Jesus says in verse 40 of John chapter 5, But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. Now, catch this. This really does a number on Calvinism because Calvinism teaches that you're either destined to be saved or destined to be lost. And if you're destined to be lost, there's nothing you can do to be saved. And if you're destined to be saved, there's nothing you can do to stay lost. And Calvinism really takes away the whole idea of man having a will. Now, I have a real problem with that because... I just don't think that squares with the character of God as revealed in the Bible. The Bible says that God is love. And it also says he's just. Well, how could love destine some people to be lost and some to be saved? How could love 
look at millions and billions of people and say, you know what? Sorry, Charlie, but I just didn't destine you to be saved. So go on to hell uh, and be tormented for eternity. That doesn't make sense to me. No. The Bible says God's not willing that any would perish, but all would come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible says God so loved the world that whosoever believes on him. Well, whosoever is whosoever. Whosoever is anybody. And notice what it says here. Jesus said, you are not willing to come to me. So Jesus in this verse is telling us that we have a will. See, nobody's going to end up in hell because God destined them to go there. No, the Bible even says that God created hell for the devil and his angels. When God first created the lake of fire, it wasn't even for human beings. It was for the devil and his fallen angels. But notice that Jesus says, you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. So right there, he's telling us we have a will. If somebody ends up in hell, then you know what? They chose it. Somewhere along the way, they chose it. We have a will. And when we hear the gospel, we, we can will, we can choose to either come to Christ or walk away. So Jesus says, you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. And then verse 41, John chapter five, I do not receive honor from men. I, says Jesus, do not receive honor from men. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my father's name. And you do not receive me. So there again, I will to come to him and I will to receive him. Twice these passages blow Calvinism out of the water. All right. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So then comes our question. Here's the question. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Now here, Jesus is telling us one of the main reasons a lot of people are never saved. And listen, if you've never come to Christ and maybe everybody listening to me right now is a Christian, but this will end up in, in, uh, on radio and my radio audience is going to hear this. And I believe somebody's driving down the road. Somebody's sitting in their house you're, you're sitting there and you've never fully come to Christ. You've heard the gospel, but you haven't come to Christ. I want to pose a question to you. Why haven't you come to Christ? Now, there's several reasons why you may not. You may not believe in him. Okay, you don't believe in him. But Jesus here is telling us one of the main things that keep people from coming to Christ. And it's this. You receive honor from one another. And you don't seek the honor that comes from God. In other words, you're afraid of what men think. You have the fear of man. You're afraid of your reputation, protecting your reputation. You don't want people saying, well, old Joe or Mary, they became Bible thumpers and they're in church now. They're real religious and this, that and the other. So uh, we don't want them around us anymore. And you're, you're afraid of ostracism. You're afraid of criticism. You're afraid that people are going to reject you because you turn to Christ. You want the applause of men more than you want the applause of God. Jesus is telling us in this question that that's one of the main obstacles to salvation for a lot of people. He starts out saying, 
Hey, I'm not out for the praise of men. That's not me. Jesus wouldn't have gotten down the street in his ministry if he had been afraid of the opinion of men because he was under criticism everywhere he went. He took the red hot heat of persecution and criticism and ostracism, uh, lies being told about him and everything, slander, everything. He took all of that every single day once he started his ministry. So Jesus is telling us, I'm not out for the praise of men because if I was worried about the praise of men, I would never go to the cross and die for you. I would never fulfill my purpose on this earth and neither will we, dear friend. If you're a believer, you will never fulfill the purpose of God if you walk in the fear of men more than the fear of God. And if you're lost, if you don't know Christ, if you've never said, Jesus, come into my heart and save me, and if the reason you haven't done it is because of personal pride, Jesus says, big mistake. What is man that you are mindful of him? Well, what is the opinion of men? Men are fickle anyway. They patch on the back one day, stab you in the back the next. They criticize, praise you one day, criticize you the next. They're your friend one day and they walk. Now, not everybody, but I don't want to sound too cynical, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, men come and men go. People that are in your life right now won't be in your life more than likely a few years from now. Why worry about their opinion? Jesus' question is, in fact, an emphatic statement. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and you don't seek the honor that comes from the only God? In other words, you won't come to him by faith if you're more concerned with the applause of men. You'll never do it. That's what Jesus is saying. You got to humble yourself to go to the cross. You know, when I got saved, I was in a room with about 50 other um, guys. Uh, we, I was in jail. I was in juvenile home. And there was about 50 of us in a room listening to an evangelist uh, share the gospel. And when he gave the invitation, first thing that jumped into my mind was, if you get up and you respond to him, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to mock you. They're going to ridicule you. Man, you'll never live it down. Don't you dare get up. But something else said to me, Jeff, you've heard the truth. If you come to me by faith, I will change you. And thank God I did. And you know what? I was the only one that night that did. But what did their opinion matter? In, in, in a week or so, I was out of there and, and, and never saw them again. And so thank God I didn't let their opinion keep me from losing my eternal soul. Amen? So Jesus is saying, how can you believe? How can you turn if man's approval is what you live for? So the lesson with this question is in order to obtain heaven's blessing and redemption, you've got to shut down the fear of man and care only for the applause of heaven. Don't worry about what people think. Listen, it's, it's with you and God. When you meet God on the judgment day, those that surround your life right now, they're not going to be there. They're not going to be on your right or your left. No, no. It's going to be you and God. That's it. No other human being whose opinion you care, you care about now, whose opinion you're concerned about now, who you're afraid of rejecting you now, they're not going to be there. It's going to be just you. 
And you do not want to stand before God without the attorney, the lawyer, your advocate, Jesus Christ standing next to you saying, all their sin has been covered in my blood. This is my child. They've been forgiven. And that's the only way you will miss hell and make heaven when Jesus is your advocate. So I want to encourage you. If the fear of man is keeping you from Jesus or from really selling out to him, time is short, friend. Time is ticking by. Years are flying by. You may not have tomorrow. You may not have another chance. Your life may be shorter than you anticipate. The time to follow Christ is now. The time to walk with him is now. So I encourage you to do so. Amen. Now let's deal with one last question tonight. This is a good one. This one applies to all of us. I love this. Jesus asked this question. If even the smallest things are beyond your control, why are you anxious about the rest? And yes, this is about worry. This question, the context for this question is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spends a lot of time, a good amount of time, addressing the futility, the uselessness of worrying. Uh, Four times in Matthew uh, chapter six, Jesus says, do not worry, do not worry, don't worry, do not worry. Four times. Now, if he said it once, we ought not do it. But if he said it four times, he must be addressing something that is really a problem for us. And of course it is. He said, don't worry about provision issues. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the way that God made you. Don't worry about any of those things. Now, I read this verse out of Luke 12, 26. Luke chapter 12, 26. I didn't read out of Matthew 6, but I read out of Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Because Luke adds something. I like this question very much. If even the smallest things, listen, are are beyond your control. Now, that word control gives us an insight into worry straight from the mouth of Jesus that we need to consider tonight. Worry is often about wanting to be in control. Has that ever, uh, uh, has that ever uh, um, hit you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever just stopped to think, wow, why am I worried? Why am I worried about this, that, or the other? Why? Well, is it because... I don't feel like I'm in control or I can't control this or I can't control that. So I'm going to worry about what I can't control. Have you thought about that? Have you considered that? Worry is often about wanting to be in control of things. Worry slips in when we're afraid something's going to happen that we can't control. We're afraid of a bad doctor's report. We can't control that. Or about the loss of a job. When you lose a job, you often can't control that. Or where we're going to get the money to pay the bills. Uh, we feel like we can't, we're not in, in enough control of our finances. Or we even worry about not being con- in control of our clothing selection, of not having the right clothes to go to school in, or to go to a party in, or to wear to the office. We, we worry about not being, uh, having enough money to buy the clothes that we'll feel proud to be in. Um, or we worry about our children going crazy on us and, and 
sometimes they do, and it's something that we really can't control, or, or we worry that a spouse might walk away, and we can't control them. These are all things beyond our control. Now, he even uses an absurdity to make a point, which Jesus sometimes did. Uh, can you, Jesus asked in the Sermon on the Mount, can you grow in height by worrying about being too short? And of course, that's an absurdity because you can stare in the mirror all day long and worry about, you know, being 5'8 instead of six foot if you're a guy or whatever height as a woman. And, and you can worry and fret over the way that God made you. But Jesus said, worrying about your height is never going to make you taller or shorter. So Jesus' question carries a message. And here's the message. Worry does not put you in control of what you can't control in the first place. I'm going to say that again. Worry does not ever put you in control of what you can't control in the first place. Worry doesn't put you in control. Worry doesn't change what is around you. It has no positive effect on anything. All worry does is create stomach ulcers. It steals your sleep from you. It robs you of your peace. Uh, it can alienate people from you because all you're ever doing is worrying and talking about what you're worried about. Some of you worry so much that you're worried about worrying so much. Jesus says, don't worry four times. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to wear, eat, or drink. Don't worry about tomorrow. And don't worry about the way that God made you. Don't worry about it. You know, I've learned along the way, and it took a long time, and I still sometimes have to remind myself of it, but I've learned that there's very, very little in life that I can control anyway. I cannot control most things. I can't control what people say or do. I wish I could, but I can't. I can't control the weather. I can't control the economy. There's all kinds of things. I can't control most things. Um, but everything is in God's control. And so that's what Jesus wants us to do. He said, don't worry about it. Uh, don't worry about tomorrow. Sufficient for today is, our, is the problems you've already got. Are the problems you've, they're already there? Don't worry about tomorrow. But just focus on today. Paul the Apostle came along later in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 6 through 7. And he said, don't worry about anything. Don't have anxiety about anything. Well, how do I get rid of it, Paul? Here's how. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And God's peace will replace the worry. God's peace will make will will mount guard over your heart and soul. Uh, God's peace will literally be like a sentry over the door of your heart uh, that will push the thief of worry away when it tries to walk in the door into the house of your soul. Uh, prayer and God's peace will meet worry at the door and say, stop right here. No further. You're not stepping over the threshold into the soul of God's child because they prayed about what they were worried about. So go away. I rebuke you, says the peace of God. And worry must take a walk and God's peace will rule over your heart and soul. 
Isn't that great? Rule over your heart and mind through Jesus Christ. So God's got everything under control. Let me read this verse in closing. How do you know that God's got everything under control? Because he told us he does. For the kingdom is the Lord's. Psalms twenty two twenty eight says, the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules. Can we say that together? He rules, not the devil. He rules, not evil men. He rules, not circumstances. He rules over the nations. And then Colossians 1.17 says, in him, all things are held together. God's in control of everything. We're in control of very, very little. So what do we do? We pray about everything, give him all of our anxieties, and then relax, relax in the Lord's care. And that is the answer to Jesus' question. If you're worried about it, what are you worried about what you can't control? That's the answer to his question. Well, I hope these questions and answers bless you. They, listen, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying getting into these, uh, studying these and being able to share them with you. I think it's wonderful to, to answer the questions Jesus asked because within every one of them is a message from the great rabbi, the teacher. So God bless you. My prayer is that God will go with you, that he'll really be with you and uh, upon you and move in your life and that he will make his face to shine upon you this week. And I look forward to seeing you Sunday. Listen, if you haven't been back to church yet, really pray about coming back because we need you there. I know COVID's out there, but 99.5% of people that get COVID survive COVID. 0.5% uh, pass from it. And virtually all of those had other situations, other conditions other weaknesses and vulnerabilities. But 99.5% of people that get it, survive it. Let's don't allow the devil to use COVID to get us out of the house of God. Just pray about it. And whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do, I know you'll do it. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday, nine or 11. Amen.